Our scripture message this morning is found in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting with verse 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial which comes upon you to test you as though some strange, something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory shall be revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely, scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Good morning, everybody. Um, we want to invite our children to Children's Church. I think um, Kathy's already back there. So um, she came and grabbed um, Cheyenne earlier. And so... Um, Follow the crowd. <laughs> if you don't know where to go, follow the crowd. They're all going the same way. Also, I, I always forget to do this in the morning. I wanted to thank our Zoomers. Uh, that's the folks joining us on, uh, on our live stream. So uh, thanks for tuning in. Um, I'm not going to make TV jokes. Most folks wouldn't get them anyway. So uh, let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Lord, your face is all we seek. And thank you for your grace to us, for loving us. And Lord, that time of prayer just thanking you for you being you, for who you are, for the glory and the splendor. Um, Lord, we, we're just amazed that you are as you are and you choose to work in and redeem a humanity that's in cosmic treason and ultimate rebellion against you. And yet, Lord, you don't give up on us. Thank you for being that way. Lord, thank you for being that kind of person. And Lord, we are in a broken and a fallen world. Um, your people, while we seek you and, and our hearts are um, inclined toward obedience, Lord, we struggle and, and we confess our sins. We confess that we don't do as we should always. And Lord, that happens on a personal and an individual level and a corporate level as well. And so, Father, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in the Southern Baptist Convention as they wrestle with the um, accusations, the findings of abuse that's happened in their ranks. And Lord, more, more troubling is their senior leadership apparently trying to cover it up or, or keep it under wraps. 
And Lord, we just pray that you would bring healing and, and unity, Lord. They are the biggest Protestant denomination in the United States. And so we feel uh, a special need to pray for their witness and their testimony. Lord, I pray that you would lead them to do what a Christian should do, which is when we're caught in our sins to confess and to make amends and to repent. And so be with them in their struggle as they go through that. Lord, thank you for sparing us. And I pray that that's not just the storm waiting to happen here, but Lord, that, um, that you have by your grace kept us from, from those kind of uh, troubles. Father, we want to pray for um, those in charge. Lord, you've commanded us to submit to the uh, human authorities. Uh, you tell us to pray for um, our leaders, uh, the emperor, the governor he sent. And so, Lord, in our context, in our way, we pray for our president, for our Congress, for our Supreme Court, and for all the decisions that weigh on them. Lord, we pray that you would give uh, our government wisdom in how to deal with inflation. Um, Lord, that you would give them wisdom in how to deal with the war in Ukraine. Father, we pray for our Supreme Court as they make um, a very difficult decision in the issue of Roe versus Wade. Uh, Father, we pray that you would protect them, that uh, the, the uh, people who show up at their house to protest and even to try to kill them, Lord, that um, our government would step in and act reasonably and well in those things. And Lord, we just pray for America that you would lead her. Uh, have mercy on our nation, we pray. Father, we also have to deal with the, the, the shootings that happen. Um, Lord, they seem to come in clumps. Uh, maybe imitators decide that it's a good time to do that or whatever. Lord, would you cure in our nation the violent streak that thinks that the answer is to kill people or that they think the answer is to, to, to threaten and intimidate people? And Lord, there's only one answer for that, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you bring revival to our land so that people would trust in you and hear your words that say, don't seek vengeance. Vengeance is yours. And Lord, that we might um, once again be a civil uh, nation. So help us, Lord. And to the extent that your church has a role in that, the way that you use us, Lord, we pray that you would start with revival in us, in our church, in our valley, in our, our, our um, state, in our country. Lord, bring Holy Spirit revival to this nation, we pray. And Lord, to that end, we pray that you would do that through your word in us now. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So when I first joined the Air Force in 19... a long time ago, um, I was stationed at Seymour Johnson, North Carolina, and I worked on F4Es. That's Airman Etherington. This proves a couple of things. This proves that I worked in F4s because I'm sitting in one. It also proves that I once had hair. <laughs> the other thing you can't see is it proved I carried way too many pens and pencils in my pocket. You know, you're climbing around in an aircraft cockpit, you can't be dropping those things. But um, when I worked on, on uh, F4s, I worked on the navigation system. And it was an ancient system. This was, it was analog, an analog computer, if you can imagine that. Digital computers now do ones and zeros and they calculate numbers. This analog system had gears and servos and cams, and, and it did it based on the position of different, um, physical position of different things in it. I was talking with Bob Kempel about this last week. Is yes, I know analog systems. I worked on it. Um, the system was actually fairly reliable, not hugely accurate, but fairly reliable. It didn't break very often. The other thing that was tied into the navigation system was the, um, the munitions delivery system, the, the bombing computer. 
Uh, because, I mean, you think about it, you want to put a bomb in the right place, you need to know where you're at and where the other thing is. And so we did the inertial navigation, but we also did the ballistics system. We had one aircraft that started bombing poorly, just couldn't hit the targets when the pilots were out. And originally they start blaming the pilots, but when they noticed this aircraft can't hit a target, then they kicked it to us, to maintenance, and said, fix this. And so on the ground, you can't do much. You can just pretend like you're flying and make sure it makes bangs when it's supposed to release things, and you know that's about it. So we were kind of stumped. What do we do with this aircraft? And we drug out this machine. It was a ballistics test set. And when you hook it up, it hooks to everything. I mean, it's sitting in the hangar, and there are wires coming out of every port on that aircraft just about and hooked to this box. We only used it on this one aircraft in my time there. And so we, we got it all hooked up. It took us probably about 45 minutes to an hour to get everything hooked up. Had the tech data out. We're like, okay, everything's good. We go back and double check. And then the boss says, okay, apply power to the aircraft. We bring up the aircraft. And he says, okay, Tim, turn on the machine. And so I hit the power button and it popped right back off. It's like, what did I do? And I hit it again, it popped right back off. So we shut everything down, we pull everything apart, go through, make sure we hooked everything up, checked all the connectors, make sure we didn't have any bent pins shorting out or anything, hooked it all back up. All right, hit the power, hit the button, popped right back off. So my boss, Staff Sergeant, I'm Airman Etherington, right? Staff Sergeant comes over, hits the button and holds it. So he's holding the power switch and he's like, okay, maybe it's a bad power switch. And after about a minute, all of a sudden you hear, bang! And a puff of smoke comes up from the back of the F4. I think we found the problem. So we shut everything back down and one up. And what it was was there's a box in there called the ballistics computer. And on the back side of that was this giant transistor. I mean, just huge. Split it right down the middle. Just broke it right in half. And my boss said, well, I think we found the problem. So we pulled that out, got a new one, put it in. I didn't get to do it, but they, just to make sure everything worked fine, they brought the machine back out, hooked it up, and ran it just to make sure it was all, you know, like that wasn't a symptom, that was actually the, the cause. And it was. We, we called that box the God machine because it hooked to everything and it did everything. But what it did in this instance was there was a problem we couldn't see. And eventually it burned it out. It, that wasn't what it was designed to do. If they caught us doing it that way, I'm sure I'd have been in trouble. But hey, I was just an airman. Uh, I didn't know any better. But what it did is it, it was designed, it was built to fine tune the system so we could put bombs on targets. And in this case, it, to fix the system, it had to burn something out. It had to make that, or that, uh, that transformer explode so that we knew what was wrong. And so what Peter is going to tell us about this morning is he's going to tell us not about a God machine, but a God who is there to fine tune us, to adjust us, but also to burn out the bad components as well. And so that's where he's gonna go this morning. Verse 12 begins, beloved, beloved. I don't think this is Paul saying, I love you. He doesn't say my beloved. I think he's, he's reminding us that God's love for us is real. You are who you are because God has fixed his love on you, his care, his concern for you. And he needs to begin with this tender, beautiful word because the message that he's going to give us is rather hard. It's going to be a little hard to hear. So, beloved, Jesus loves you. And that's why he's doing everything that he's doing. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. Now, you remember last week how the verse began. 
the end of all things is at hand. And I, I said last week, we are in the end times. And what signifies, what, what marks the end times primarily is the presence of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit in us. And that's true here, too, and the Spirit will come up in this. But the other thing that marks the end times is opposition to God's people. Why is it different in the end times than it was before Jesus came? Well, before Jesus came, Israel was a nation. They had borders. They had army. They had a way to defend themselves. They, they were a, a, a unit. And so persecution ideally would come from outside and, and could be resisted. What's different about the end times is we're not in a homeland. We don't have a chunk of real estate to defend. We are scattered. Remember, this is about hope and the dispersion. We are dispersed. And so when persecution comes, we don't have a safe place to retreat to. So, so that's why he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you. This is what life in the end times will be like. We will face opposition. It's the reality of it. It's, it's the normal way that Christians live. Don't be surprised as if it was some strange person showed up at your house and said, hi, I'm moving in. It's not like that at all. This is what we signed up for. As a matter of fact, in John 16, Jesus himself said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That's a promise. In the world you will have tribulation. But have heart, I have overcome the world. He doesn't say, have heart, I've overcome the world, so you will never face tribulation. The tribulation that we face, it's a fiery trial, and it's in his hand. And he says, don't be surprised at this fiery trial when it comes to test you. What does he mean by test? Does he mean to find out if you're real or not? This is a pass-fail? This is, this is like your, your calculus final, and, and you're going to make it or you're not? Actually, if you take those two words, fiery trial and test, and bring them together, um, actually, the word trial isn't in the Greek. The word there in the Greek is pyros, which is just fire. And so what that word is used for, usually, often pyros, what that's used for is the fire of a, um, a, um, a crucible, where you put metal in. And same thing with that word test. The word test can have a couple of meanings, but these two words, when they're brought together, have to do with putting metal into a cauldron and heating it up and purifying it. So in metallurgy, you, don't, you use the word test in a different way than to find out if it's really gold. Well, you wouldn't put a rock in a, in a uh, cauldron and go, well, is that gold? No, hey, that's just a stone. Throw it away. You put it in going, this is gold. Let's see how good this is. Let's refine this. And so that's what he's saying here is, beloved, don't be surprised at this, this crucible that you've been put in to test you, to, to refine you, as though something strange were happening. This is, this is how it's going to be. And the promise here, and we'll unpack it as we go through this verse, is God's doing this on purpose. He has a reason for doing it. So he, Jesus reminds us also in John 15, the world's going to hate us. He, he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If the world hates you, if people don't like you, if people ridicule you, good news. You're following the way of the master. You're doing what your master has done. We're called Jesus, Jesus disciples. And what disciples do is they walk in the path of their master. Their master teaches them. Their master shows them. He doesn't say, don't do what I'm doing. Go do that thing. 
He says, come along with me. That was how Jesus did ministry, right? For three years, he walked with his disciples. He said, come with me. Leave your, leave your house, leave your family, leave your counting table, leave your fishing nets and come and follow me. And so that's all we're doing. We're doing the same thing they are, is we're leaving all of those things and we're following him. So as we walk with him, are people going to cheer us? No more than they cheered him. Beloved, don't be surprised by the fiery trials that come to test you as if something strange were happening. This is what we signed up for. Verse 13, he goes on. But, often in the scriptures, the word but can be the best news ever. So don't be surprised by this fiery trial, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Right? That's, that's what it means to be a disciple with Jesus, right? Take up your cross and follow me, he said. So as we walk with him, rejoice insofar to the degree that you share in Christ's sufferings. Now, you can suffer for other reasons, but as long as you're suffering with Christ, you're walking in the right path. You're walking in the right way. He says, rejoice that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's the end of his suffering, right? His suffering wasn't just pointless. Our suffering is not just pointless. We walk with him in the suffering because we're looking forward to the glory that is to be revealed. So if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So this is how you know if you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. The Holy Spirit rests upon you. The Spirit is inclining you towards obedience to Christ. He's conforming you to Jesus' image, and therefore people don't like you. Now, if you're a jerk and people don't like you, you're a jerk and people don't like you. But if you're trying to follow the way of the master and people are opposed to you for that, you are blessed. It is a sign that the Spirit is working in you. It is a blessing that he's doing those things. Paul in, in, in Romans says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Tremendous news. That's the glory to be revealed. Provided, wait a minute, there's more. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Our suffering is not pointless. Our suffering doesn't have no end. Our suffering isn't for no reason. Insofar as we suffer with Christ, we're suffering for, for a purpose. Now, there is a way to suffer as a Christian, and there is a way to not suffer. And so Peter's well aware of this, and the next thing he says, verse 15, is he warns us. But let, no, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So again, if you're suffering for doing wrong, there's nothing meritorious in that. If you rip off your company, if you steal money from your company and you get arrested and you're in trouble and you go, oh, I'm, so, you know, I'm suffering because I'm a Christian. No, you're suffering because you're a thief. There's nothing meritorious in that, nothing redemptive in that. That doesn't share in the glory. So don't do those things. That's what he's warning us is don't do these things. And it's not limited to just murder, theft, uh, evildoer and meddler. Evildoer and meddler are such broad terms, they mean anything. Doing wrong. Don't do that. Don't do wrong. Um, when it comes to what's going to be judged, there's no set limit. You know, here's the list of all the things that will be judged. But I think of Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, 
the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. From murder to lying, he says, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's not suffering like a Christian. Don't suffer that way. If you do something like that, no, you're going to take your lumps for it. That's the way it is. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, verse 16, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify in God, or let him glorify God in that name. In what name? Well, Christian. And if, if you're suffering as a Christian, now the word Christian, sometimes you might hear people say, oh, that means little Christ. That is absolutely not what that word means. It doesn't mean you're a little Christ. That would be blasphemous. It, the word Christian is formed the same way Herodian is. And what a Herodian is, is a person who follows Herod and who is aligned with him and on his, his agenda. And so when they look at Christians, they say, that's what a Christian is. Somebody is a Christian if they follow the Christ and they're aligned with his agenda, not their little, Christ, little Christ. To be a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus. That's what it means. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're walking the same path he walked. It goes through the cross. It ends ultimately in glory. So if anyone suffers as a, as a Christian, don't be ashamed of that. Don't, don't be ashamed of, of being persecuted and opposed for that because you're going to glorify God. Well, how can we glorify God in the name of suffering as a Christ or as a, as a Christian? We can glorify God by forsaking the escape from that suffering, namely denying that we're Christians either through word or silence, and endure in Christ's name because to us, the glory that is to be revealed is worth it. So in other words, we look at what we could lose now. I could lose my job. I could lose my position. I could lose money. I could lose influence. I could lose face. I could lose Facebook or Twitter followers. If you look short term, the, is the cost enough? Well, you have to look past that. The glory to be revealed. Is it worth the price you're about to pay? That's the question. So when you're looking past something, you're looking towards something that, that, that it might be better. So for example, this is the negative example. Don't do what I just did, okay? When I was in the Air Force, I was going to school, and they came and they said, we have this program called Veterans Education Assistance Program, VEEP. It's a great deal. For every dollar you put in, we'll put in $2. Like, oh, that sounds good, up to 1200 bucks. So you get about 3600 bucks, and, and I was like, well, that's not worth it. So I never signed up for VEEP. But I did hear about the, Mont the Montgomery GI Bill. The GI Bill was an education bill, and the Vietnam era one was really generous. They gave a decent amount of money. But they killed it and replaced it with VEEP, which I didn't think was worth it. And they said, well, we're coming up with a new one. So I got a letter from the Air Force saying, Veep is about to go away. You should put money in this. I'm like, why? I'm not going to waste my time with that. I'll just wait for the GI Bill to come out. I could bypass what was a decent deal. I mean, hey, 3600 bucks, right? Anybody, if I walked up to you and said, do you want $3,600, would anybody go up? Nah, I don't want it. 
It was a good deal. It was, you know, it was better than nothing, but I was looking at something bigger. Okay, now the bad part. When the GI Bill came out, I went in to sign up for it. I said, hey, I want one of those. They said, oh, how much money did you put in Veep? Well, nothing. Well, you can't have it then. But the idea was <laughs> I would bypass this lesser thing for the greater. That's what I was aiming for. That's what he's saying here is if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. I, what, what you're saying when you say, you know what? I will take the opposition. I will take the persecution. I'll take the name calling. I'll take the loss because what I gain in the end is so much bigger. It is so much more grand. It is worth all of this less stuff. And so in the time, in the moment, it looks like, what is wrong with you? Why would you, why would you put up with this? You, why would you endure these kind of things? All you got to do is just a pinch of, of uh, incense on the altar, and it all goes away. What is the big deal? You're going, that's too cheap. I can't be bought for such a paltry amount. What I stand to gain, the inheritance I have in the future, is so much greater. That's the promise. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what we want. And this story, this idea of letting go something now so that you can have something greater later on is something Jesus talked about. Two parables just right off the top of my head from Matthew 13. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. What does he get when he buys the field? The treasure he found in it. It, it far exceeded everything he owned that he sold to buy it. Is that a fool? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of the fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. He found the treasure. He found something that was worth everything he had, and he sold it and he bought it. That is not a fool. That is a wise man. That is spending what you can't keep to get what you can't lose. So how can we do this? How can we have that assurance? What, what gives us the idea that we will find this? So like the, the merchant, he looked at the pearl and went, this thing's worth a ton. The guy who found the treasure in the field found a treasure in a field. What, what assurances do we have that the glory to be revealed, something we can't even touch, what assurance do we have that that's for real? Well, he's already told us because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The spirit is our guarantee. The fact that we have the Holy Spirit, he's our down payment, he's our taste, he's our, he's our glimpse into the future. Now get that 2 Corinthians 5. For while we are still in this tent, this physical body, we groan, being burdened. Not that we should be unclothed, not that we should get rid of this mortal body and float around as spirits, but that we would be further clothed, that this body would be made new, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. How's your body doing? Mine's getting a little cranky. I'm coming up on a significant milestone age soon, and I got to tell you, the knees are going a little bit, got heart problems. You know, it's like, what's going on? Do we want to get rid of this body? Well, no, we want this to be made better. That's part of the glory to be revealed. And what is the promise, the seal, the guarantee? 
is that you have the Holy Spirit. He's that foretaste, that, that glimmer. So keep that in mind when you face suffering. Now, when you read this, you could think, well, I don't face that kind of, I don't, you know, I don't have somebody burning my house down around me. I don't have uh, people coming to arrest me or anything like that. Keep in mind, there is a range of suffering, and Peter himself mentions it in this section. He begins by calling it a fiery trial. Has anybody here suffered in what you would consider to be a fiery trial because you're a Christian? Probably not in, in the West, specifically not in America, probably not. He calls it sharing in Christ's sufferings. None of us have been beaten or crucified. But then in verse 14, he says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, insulted, rebuked, made a reproach of, if people have made fun of you, do you begin to get the idea there is a broad range of what suffering can mean in this context. We're not all called to suffer in that way. It can be different for different people at different times. So true suffering of a Christian doesn't have to be exactly like Abel when Cain killed him. It doesn't have to be like David when Saul was hunting him. It doesn't have to be like Israel under Antiochus Epiphanes in 160 when he came and desecrated the temple and, and tried to wipe out Judaism. It doesn't have to be like Christians under Diocletian in 303 where he tried to wipe out Christianity. It doesn't have to be like Protestants under Louis V in 1724 when he authorized persecution of the Protestants. It doesn't have to be like believers under Stal Stalin in Mao or under Ceausescu in uh, Czechoslovakia who tried to eradicate the church. It doesn't have to be like our brothers and sisters who, do, who now in North Korea, China, India, under ISIS and different places around the world are suffering and some of them are being executed on a beach. It doesn't have to be that way to be suffering. It can be insulted for the name of Christ. We don't get to pick those things. So here's the thing. How can I know when I get to that point, when that kind of suffering, when that kind of opposition and persecution comes, how can I know that I'll endure? How can I trust that I, I if I was to come up to you now and tell you, I, I had a vision and in three days, you're gonna be uh, buried up to your neck in sand with fire ants devouring your face. And all you have to do is just deny Christ. I would freak out. I wouldn't know what to do. How will you know when you come to that point that you'll endure? Because it doesn't rest on you. It's not about how firm is my faith. It is you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of glory and of God. And the Holy Spirit at that time will meet you and will fill up your, your weak arms. He will strengthen your weak arms. He will hold you tight. He will help you walk in the right way. So can you, in whatever degree of suffering you have to face, endure? Yes, because you've got this promise. Take a look at, at Hebrews chapter 11. That's all about enduring. That's all about suffering, all about what was going on. The, the first name that popped out to me as I was thinking about this was Moses. And this is how the author of Hebrews explains it. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I, that feels so much like us. He is in the lap of luxury. He is in the most powerful household in the entire world and the most powerful nation in the entire world at the time. Sound familiar? We are in the greatest nation on the face of the earth right now. And it would be real easy to become comfortable. By faith, Moses, when he had, was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God 
than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I'm sure Pharaoh's household offered plenty. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses is our example. He could look at everything Pharaoh's household offered him and said, can't measure up to what's beyond it. Can't measure up to the promise that I have, that Jesus Christ is coming. I'm looking forward to that. So the closest we're going to get to that, that taste of eternity right now is the Holy Spirit sealing us, sanctifying us, leading us, speaking to us through the scriptures that he inspired and reminding us of Jesus' words. That's how you stand. That's how you're ready to face this opposition, how you can go, I'm ready for the glory to be revealed. Then in verse 17 and 18, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This is actually a statement that is just rich with promise and warning. Um, it's a little complicated to unpack. I hope I do a decent job of it. What Peter is doing in these, these verses is he's relying on two Old Testament prophets and then quoting a proverb to support himself. So the two Old Testament prophets he's relying on are, are Ezekiel and Malachi. And the reason I say that is because a lot of the words that he's using here are the same words that are used in the Septuagint in a couple of verses, and the concepts are very similar. So let me, let me unpack them a little bit and try to bring us back to how this fits together. So in Ezekiel chapter 9, Ezekiel receives this vision. He's in Jerusalem. They're worshiping all sorts of false gods. The temple is compromised. It's just a bad situation. And he sees six men coming from the east. Um, presumably, these are angels because of what they're about to do. And God tells these angels, pass through Jerusalem and mark everybody, who, who, all those people who sigh and groan over the abominations that are being committed, verse 4. And so he, they go through and they mark everybody. And then the other command is kill everybody else. But he says in verses 6 and 7, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go. So this is the idea of judgment beginning with us. We are the household of God. I, I think household is probably a bad way to translate it. It's probably the house of God, which is the temple. Remember earlier, Peter had said we were living stones being built together. And so this is that idea of the judgment begins with us. The purification begins with us. The work begins here. It's pretty dire. But there's another verse, there's another prophet that has something to say that has a slight twist on that, puts it in a slightly different uh, image, and that's from Malachi chapter 3. So let me just read the verses for you. Um, it's easier than trying to summarize them. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. 
Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who falsely swear, against those who oppose, uh, who press the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside against the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So in Malachi's version of it, it's a similar thing. God is coming into his temple to judge. But the good news is for those who follow him, for his people, it's going to be tremendous blessing. But there is an element of purification. The, the, these people who are, um, who are evildoers, the sorcerers, adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who ho- uh, rip off their employees, who rip off widows and orphans, it's not going to go well for them. And so I think when you bring these two pictures together, what's happening is God is starting in his temple, and he's going to purify his people. In the Old Covenant, the people were largely a, a genetic group. They were a family. If they were descended from Abraham f- through Jacob, through the 12 tribes, they were a Jew. didn't matter if they believed or didn't believe. They were Jews. And when they were Jews in that covenant, as long as they didn't do certain things, they would be, quote, unquote, in that covenant. But that didn't mean they were saved. It didn't mean that they were blessed. And so what happens is they come to a point in their history where they're committing gross idolatry. And God sends prophet after prophet calling them back, come back, come back, and they refuse. And so he sends them into exile and brings back the remnant, which again starts good, but by the time Jesus shows up, they hate Jesus so much they kill him. God himself shows up and they hate him. But the good news is what comes out of that is the new covenant. And the new covenant isn't made with a, a people group or a racial identity or, or, or an ethnic group. It's made with everybody who will believe in Jesus Christ, the sign and the seal of the Holy Spirit coming upon us. And so in the church, we have this thing called the church. We gather together. We, we support each other. We instruct each other. We sing to each other psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We, we cater to each other. We long for each other. We care for each other. And sometimes there are hypocrites among us, those who don't really know Jesus, who don't really trust him. And so God gives us church discipline. When their ways are found out, there's, there's this careful process by which we exclude them. And the idea is hopefully they'll repent and come and join us along the way. But if not, they're gone. So judgment begins here. Now, for us who are believers in Jesus Christ, who have been justified by faith alone in Christ alone, that's good news. How can that be good news? Because the judgment that falls on us is not judgment unto condemnation. It is not judgment to damnation. We've been justified by Christ. Who is there to condemn? The judgment that falls on us is not to destroy us, but to purify us. It's that fire that comes to test us, to cause those sins that remain to burn out, to be rejected. He he works in us in ways that sometimes feel harsh. But he has a purpose, and he's doing something. Judgment has begun with the household of God. That's great news. It's terrible news for those on the outside. Because if it's us who are scarcely saved, if it took the death of the Son of God to save us, what about those who reject that? The judgment is theirs to bear alone. 
It's a terrifying prospect. And so what has Jesus done about that? What has God done about that? What has he told us to do? You see it every time you leave this building. Go. Make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So the judgment is beginning here. A terrifying judgment waits those on the outside. So brothers and sisters, let's go make disciples. Let's bring more people in to have their sins purged rather than have them uh, face God's wrath individually. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. God has a purpose in this. God has a reason for bringing suffering to you. And it's not because he's mean. The last verse, verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to their faithful creator while doing good. Those who suffer according to God's will. God could bring suffering into your life. He could bring opposition. He could bring uh, rebuke, reproach. He could bring physical pain. He could bring execution into your life. It comes through his hands. No matter what Satan's purpose is, it comes through God's hands. So think of Paul. Paul said, I have this thorn in my flesh. Now, what that was, we're not sure. It could be a physical, um, physical problem. It could be bad teachers opposing him because they're messengers from Satan. So it could be a message that they bring. It could be a physical thing. Whatever it was, it was a messenger from Satan. And was that it? Was that, I'm done because Satan has come against me? Nope. This is, it's a messenger for Satan so that I might not be conceited. So even Satan, in his worst attempt to oppress and oppose the Apostle Paul, actually accomplished God's purpose in making him humble. It's, it's just tremendous news. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. Doesn't mean the suffering is going to be any easier, more pleasant, that you can smile and laugh through it. It's still suffering, but it's according to God's will. And God's will for you is not your damnation, not your condemnation, not your ruination. It is your salvation. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. He is your creator. Not just in the sense that he created humanity. That way, at least, we all share that. He's our faithful creator because he has created us anew in Christ Jesus. He has created us anew by giving us the Holy Spirit. He's created this thing called the church that is a global community of these people. He is your faithful creator. He's done all these things on your behalf. This is, this is the God who is allowing suffering to come to you. He's doing it for a good purpose. And then he ends with the words, while doing good. If you suffer for doing good, this is a gracious thing in God's sight. If you suffer in the name of Christ as a Christian, this is a good thing. These are the ways that you can suffer. There is a way to suffer while not doing good that is not going to save you. It's not redemptive. It's not helpful. It's probably going to burn out if you're really one of Christ's people. So this is the message that he's been bringing to us. He's been careful so far to tell us, look, suffering's coming. It's going to happen. But he's been kind of circumspect about it. And now he's like, no, don't be surprised. It really is going to happen. And, and it will happen to us at some point in some way, in some measure. 
Um, that's what he told us in Hebrews is, you know, God rebukes us like, he disciplines us like a father. If your father never disciplined you, if he just let you do whatever you want, can you imagine what you'd be like? This is a wild man. Um, God doesn't want us to be like that. He's at work in us. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying us, making us more like Christ. And one of the tools in that toolbox is suffering. We don't want to suffer. We're not calling out for it. But when it comes, suffer like a Christian. Because God has a redemptive purpose in that for you. How? Because you're looking forward to the glory at the end. If I suffer through this now, what awaits me is Christ's return. I don't think we have human words to wrap around what that will be like. We just can't imagine it. It gets rather figurative. If you read through the book of Revelation, if you're reading through the Bible this year, right? When you get to Revelation, you get all these really bizarre pictures of dragons and women giving birth and, and fire from heaven and everything. And then we get to the new Jerusalem and it gets concrete again and we measure a city and here's this thing. And then all of a sudden words run out and it's just, it's kind of big. And the best news is God's going to wipe away every tear. We can't imagine. I can't, I wish I could define for you what that glory is going to be like. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what awaits those. And so we get the foretaste, the Holy Spirit working in us going, believe me, you guys, it's good. It's going to be great. So endure as a Christian in that name. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to suffer. We don't seek it out. We're not looking for it. But Lord, when it comes, we want to confess it comes through your hand. It comes with your purpose attached to it. Satan may be there to, to bear, burn us down, to, to wear us out, to accuse us, to make us doubt ourselves, to make us doubt you. And yet, Lord, we believe that your hand is in that as well. Guiding that suffering, guiding that opposition to a glorious end of trusting more in Christ, being more like Christ, that the Holy Spirit is working in us through those things. And so, Lord, would you fill us at that moment when we face the trial, would you fill us with faith? Holy Spirit, would you echo verses in our minds, in our hearts, to remind us of the promise that awaits? And Lord, would you equip us, fit us, cause us to suffer in the name of Christ as a Christian when we have to? And Lord, would you please do what you've promised and conform us to the image of Christ through all of these things? Lord, have mercy on us, we pray. Amen.